Welcome, everyone. We can go ahead and get started. For those of you who haven't, uh, make sure to get a handout. They're in the uh, sound booth on the side there. You all probably know about that by now. And we can go ahead and start with our lesson. I'll ask for the Lord's blessing and help on our time and go from there. So let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we praise you for your salvation in Christ. We praise you for your word and thank you that you have revealed in the pages of scripture not only your character but your work of salvation through Jesus that has made us uh, no longer estranged sinners but has welcomed us into your home as adopted and cleansed and justified saints all because of the blood and righteousness of Christ and not only that but you've poured out your spirit upon us to indwell us and to bring your very life to be within us and to give us the eternal enjoyment of you Thank you for this study that we've been able to do over these last several weeks, and thank you for the things you have for us today. We pray that you'd open our eyes to understand and behold the beauty of your teaching in Scripture regarding the Holy Spirit and spiritual gifts. Please give me clarity. Give us all um, alertness and um, soundness of mind and uh, just wakefulness and humility of heart to receive what you have to teach us so that we would better walk in using the gifts that the Spirit has given us for the edification of Christ's people. We pray that you be glorified in all these things. In Jesus' name, amen. So we have been in this series studying the Holy Spirit as the Lord and life giver. This is taken, as we've said many times, from one of the lines of the famous uh, Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed of the 4th century. And we've looked at the, the Holy Spirit's lordship as God, as, as a person of the Holy Trinity, and also his life-giving, that all, all the divine works are shared. They're all inseparable. Everything God does, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all doing. But the way that each person um, operates within those divine works varies. And so we've seen that the Holy Spirit is, in particular, the life-giving perfecter of all the divine works. We've seen that in creation, providence, and salvation. So zooming into salvation, we first looked at what the Holy Spirit does individually in us at that moment of conversion, when we go from death to life uh, and believing in Christ. And then we looked at the next week, which was last week, at what about the whole rest of our Christian life as individuals? What is the Holy Spirit doing there in the ongoing work of salvation? Not just that one-time conversion event, but the ongoing work of sanctification, the Spirit's activity there. And we, as I said before, we were focusing in on the individual experience. But that's not the whole picture by any means. There's a, a, a lot of what the Spirit does that's corporate and collective for the people of God, the church. So these next two Sundays, that's what we're going to look at, the Spirit's activity in us corporately. And we're kind of starting with a special case, and then we're going to talk a little bit more generally next week on the Spirit and the church. What is the Holy Spirit doing among the people of God? But we're going to start today with the topic of spiritual gifts. And this fits, of course, within the broader church-wide activity, the corporate activity of the Holy Spirit among Christ's people. Um, and what we have in this topic is not only encouraging and practical teaching for the life of the church, but as you are probably well aware, we have some major landmine areas of theological controversy. And um, at the beginning of the course, you may recall if you were here the first lesson, I kind of asked you, think about what, you, you know, what comes to mind when we say we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit. And uh, we identified this is an area, some of the issues regarding spiritual gifts 
um, where the doctrine of the Holy Spirit is fraught with arguments and differing views, especially revolving around the continuation of miraculous spiritual gifts like healing and languages and prophecy. And as I said back then, we are conscientiously didn't want to let that question, those questions dominate this course by any means because there's already, I would say, there's too much theological bandwidth that those take up in evangelical attention today. Meanwhile, there's a wealth of biblical teaching on the spirit that has nothing to do with spiritual gifts and nothing to do with miraculous spiritual gifts. And in fear of that, these controversies, we've tended to leave a lot of meat on the bone and we've tended to impoverish ourselves of these riches of all these things that the Bible is teaching us about the spirit. And so a lot of this course has been trying to intentionally work against that and say, no, let's, let's look deeply at all these other beautiful things that the Bible tells us about the spirit and his ministry. But we do have to deal with these questions. <laughs> the time does come when we have to, uh, in being faithful to the, the scripture deals with this issue of spiritual gifts. And this is an active area of confusion and controversy in our day. Uh, so even today, we don't want to let the whole lesson be dominated by the argument of do these miraculous gifts continue. We want to first start with kind of uh, the broadest issue of what are spiritual gifts, just studying those in general. Um, and then we're going to sort of narrow in progressively. So we're going to then look at miraculous spiritual gifts as a subset of spiritual gifts and understand those, what the New Testament teaches about those, and then ratchet down even further to the question of, okay, do those continue? Does that make sense? So we're starting at what are spiritual gifts, then what are miraculous spiritual gifts, and then do miraculous spiritual gifts continue today? So, again, we don't even want to let the controversy over those miraculous gifts dominate our whole discussion of spiritual gifts, but we do want to give it some, some time and attention. So any questions or thoughts about that approach before we get into it? Okay. Spiritual gifts in general. Well, how do, how do, first of all, how do gifts fit into the Spirit's broader role? Uh, up to this point, we've seen that the Spirit is the bond of our union with Christ as his body. Uh, we said back in the lesson on conversion that union with Christ is kind of the hub of the wheel of all that the Spirit brings about in salvation in the Christian life. And uh, as we're going to see next week a little more fully, the Spirit, therefore, is the bond of union between Christians as members of Christ's body. Uh, not only is every part united to the head by the Spirit, but there, therefore every member is united to each other by the Spirit. And so if this body metaphor is very important and helpful for understanding spiritual gifts, you have a body of members united under Christ through the Spirit, the head. Christ the head through the Spirit. And so the gifts are essentially Christ's, Christ the head um, giving gifts of life-giving through his Spirit to his body. It's essentially Christ ministering to his people through his spirit and that life coming from this, ultimately from the Father through the Son in the spirit and that life being enjoyed and that life being cultivated and nourished in Christ's people. So um, you have this idea of Christ and the spirit, of course, if, if the spirit is in us, Christ therefore is in us. Romans 8.10, if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. The Spirit is the life-giving presence of Christ in us. And so the specific narrow question of spiritual gifts are, this is a mechanism of Christ ministering to his people by the Spirit. Um, uh, Ephesians 4, I have, I think, cited in your handout as well. 
And in those verses, there's, it's a complicated sentence, but essentially he's saying the, body, the head makes the body grow itself by speaking the truth in love. So Christ makes the body grow and mature and develop by means of ministry, which is spiritual gifts. So what are spiritual gifts? Um, they are ministries gifted by God. They're grace. They're gracious ministries for Christians to use for one another's benefit in the body of Christ. They are ministries gifted by God for Christians to use for one another's benefit in the body of Christ. Now, some have claimed regarding spiritual gifts that they are strictly supernatural gifts, that they are entirely disconnected from any natural abilities that we had outside of Christ. Um, I believe that distinction is artificial and unnecessary because as we've seen up to this point several times in the series, especially think of what we learned about providence and what we learned about conversion, the spirit often works through the ordinary. His operation doesn't typically bypass or violate nature, but it perfects and fructifies, makes nature fruitful, makes it uh, fulfill its intended uh, purpose. So I believe spiritual gifts would fit under that, that it's not necessarily something like you're zapped on the moment of conversion with some ability that you had that's completely disconnected from any natural abilities. It's more the spirit perfecting and making fruitful for Christ's purpose for edification of the body, maybe some new things you didn't have, maybe some things that you did have in a natural sense, but the Spirit makes it fruitful for Christ. So so we just don't need to make this hard distinction between anything you had naturally and anything that the Spirit gives. That really, I think, roots in a a deeper misunderstanding that, kind of dualism, that you you either have nature or you have grace, that that they're totally separate categories. Does that make sense? We've seen, I hope it's not, not a new thing, we've seen the Spirit perfecting nature, the Spirit making nature fruitful. So what are they? Well, well they're, they're ministries that lead to the common good. I'm going to read a long chunk out of 1 Corinthians 12, verses 4 to 13. I don't normally read this long of a chunk, but it's just the clearest and longest explanation of spiritual gifts among several in the New Testament. But I want you to listen in on, not only there, the emphasis here is on the diversity of operations that come from the triune God to gifting the people of God, but also the the unity of purpose. It is what verse 7 calls the common good. It's a diversity of operations, but a unity of purpose, the common good. So I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 12, 4 to 13. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So diverse operations empowered by the same spirit because we're a part of the same body, the body of Christ, and it is for the common good, for the building up of the body 
Ephesians 4, 11 to 16 is a passage. We read a lot in this church because it, it, it uh, lays out a very similar vision uh, of this idea of the common good use of the gifts, mature, maturing us collectively into the likeness of Christ. That's kind of what Ephesians 4, 11 to 16 is saying, that, that gifts are given so that we build each other up and we more and more look like Jesus together. That's the common good. And that's perhaps the most important point we need to know about spiritual gifts. They are to be used in love for the mutual edification, the building up into Christ's likeness of Christ's body on earth. If there's only one thing that you come away knowing about spiritual gifts today, it should be that. They are to be used in love. They're gracious gifts of God to be used in love for the upbuilding edification of Christ's body. Any questions so far or thoughts? Yeah. The body of Christ or the church, mm-hmm. the hand, the foot, and yeah. the eye, they're given different tasks or parts of mm-hmm. ministry or service in the church. Yeah, exactly. That, that discussion of who's the hand, who's the eye, who's that is actually just after this in 1 Corinthians 12 because Paul takes this image and he, he kind of pivots to this application of don't look down on anyone else or yourself in terms of your value and your need, needfulness, the body's need of you is everyone has a role to play. And it should heighten our sense of gratitude and appreciation for everyone in the body. So absolutely. Yeah, Paul. The gifts that you just read in 1 Corinthians, are some of those canceled out because they're in the, in, during the age of the apostles? Were yeah, that is a question. A good question. Are some of those basically, are all those still happening or some of them later on? Uh, are some of them not, did they cease later? And that's exactly the question we're going to be handling toward the end here. Yeah, good question. So um, let's talk a little bit about the inventory of gifts. What are they? Like, what, what's the list? And, and um, you heard a long list of them out of 1 Corinthians 12. That's the longest, probably most, the, the fullest list. There are different texts of scripture that I have there in your handout that will lay out different, uh, gifts and they express it differently. So, like the broadest categorization is First Peter four ten eleven that says those who speak and those who serve. Like that's the very broadest uh, uh, bins that we could we could think of speaking and serving gifts. Other texts will go into a little bit more detail. Romans twelve six to eight lists uh, prophecy, service, teaching, exhortation, contribution, leading, and mercy. Uh, we just heard a pretty long list out of 1 Corinthians 12. There's actually another list later on in the same chapter that, that in verses 28 to 30 says apostles, prophets, teachers, miracles, gifts of healing, helping, administration, languages, and interpretation. And you may have caught in that one, there's both functions and offices, people, in that one. And, and, and similarly, Ephesians 4.11 focuses not on activities but on officers, people, that fulfill functions in the church, that, that fulfill roles in the church, offices, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers, which is a slightly different angle on basically the same idea. There are certain, and that, and and one thing to just as we look at all you know five of these lists and zoom zoom out a little bit. One thing that we should see is that none of these lists are comprehensive. There's no single list that has all of them, and and I believe it's Im- implied based on that we can infer that. It's not even certain that they're all list, that all possible spiritual gifts are listed here. None of these lists are meant to be, this is the library of possible spiritual gifts. 
It's examples. It's just in the flow of whatever the, the author there is trying to say, throwing out examples of what kinds of things the Spirit is gifting the body members to do. So it kind of cautions us, I think, against being too precise and dogmatic in how we identify gifts. There may be spiritual gifts that aren't in any of the New Testament lists. But the broad principle is these are gracious ministries gifted by God to us for the edification of the body of Christ. Any questions on that? Thoughts on that? And, of course, you heard in that list some things that, oh, you heard about miracles and you heard about healing. So we are going to talk about that. But at least in terms of what's in the texts of the New Testament, that, those are the inventory. Yeah. Um, so speaking of spiritual gifts, it's something I've been thinking about quite a bit lately myself. And how do you identify? Well, I could not give a better segue into our next point. Are you sure you didn't get that off the hand? <laughs> How do I identify? Before we go into that, great question. Does anyone else have, have any in, interaction with what we've just covered? So great question. I'm glad you asked. Anna, right? Yeah. What's, how do I identify? So the next question is discovering and using our gifts. How should we discover and use our spiritual gifts? Well, some evangelicals have, you may have run into this in the past, have developed tests, uh, evaluations, questionnaires that are supposed to help you discover what your gifts are, your spiritual gifts. Has anyone taken a test like that? I have. Has anyone here taken a test like this? Okay. Uh, discussion. What are some pros? What are some possible benefits to, to something like that? Yeah. Well, if you're completely <laughs> unsure, going through a test like that can help you think about what you want to do versus what you might like to do versus what you're led to do. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, if it's in the kitchen or, you know, out in the pulpit, obviously from that, you know, just helping to narrow down or even yeah. to expose you to what kind of ministries are out there. Right. That's a very good point. So it can kind of sift through your own maybe inclinations and it can help put certain things on your radar that you may not have known about, which that's, that's helpful, right? I, I, we, we had, we do our SLT training, servant leadership training, and, and we, not to get too into the weeds, but we, we have kind of more of a teaching level track. We have more of a serving track. And we had a guy a, a couple rounds ago when we did this, who, when he was kind of going down the serving track and it was like, he had never heard before. It was like this light bulb moment. And he's like, Oh, like, People who are called to serve practically, that's an important part of the body. Like he didn't, he thought that if you weren't like a teacher, you were like a spectator. And it was like that. It was like exposure to, oh, this is a biblical thing that God has gifted me to do. And I had no idea that that was valuable. So there, there is value in any, any kind of resource that will expose you to what, what the Bible does give us. Matt, did you have something here? Kind of saying what you're saying is the, the, sometimes we don't realize that what a gift, what gifts we have, mm-hmm. um, like that they are actually a gift, mm-hmm. and it's an encouragement because, like, you might be thinking, "Oh man, I can never teach or sing," yeah. you know. And well, there are other things that God has given you that. So that could be very encouraging to discover by means of a, a thing like, "Oh, I, I always knew I was inclined this way and had." Strengths this way. I never knew that was a, something that could be beneficial to the body of Christ. That could be useful. What are some possible drawbacks to taking like a, a questionnaire exam to figure out your spiritual gifts? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, they could, like you said, there's lists that aren't complete, and yeah. you're not in those lists, but you 
definitely have some abilities, something you can share with the body, mm -hmm. and it's not there, and it can cause some stress. And it's like, oh, I don't have any spiritual gifts. Oh yeah. So that, that just that point about you know. It's maybe assumes too much over systematized kind of a listing that, yeah, it almost can, can turn what's supposed to be an organism, the body, into a machine, right? Or it's like, what part are you? You know, it can be a little too, a little too stiff. And people could, who have legitimate spiritual gifts that aren't, aren't going to fall into any of those could get left out or confused. Yeah, Maggie. You're like, oh, I'm not gifted to work with babies. Yeah. So I'm not going to serve yeah. in the nursery. Yeah. Anyone can serve in the nursery. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> so that is a, is a really good point. So, uh, yeah, I'm going to come back to that. That's a very good point. Um, Randy. Yeah, it could be misused as a shopping list. <laughs> okay. Misused as a shopping list. So, like, what? Okay. So, it could, it, it could, I could come away feeling entitled to the opportunities to use certain gifts um, because I scored high on whatever I scored high on teaching. So why aren't you letting me up on the pulpit kind of thing um, or something like, you know, if there's, if there's a gift that somebody self identifies, well, yeah, th there are, and I'm not here to, we don't typically use these. We're not dogmatically against them. You're not going to see us as elders uh, passing them out here. That's not at the end of the class, but I mean, they could be useful. I, I, it's not a, a black and white thing, but I think one, one of the dangers to just highlight, and I appreciate both the pros and cons that you all have, have, have given us, is, first of all, yeah, kind of to Gary's point, how are we sure that this is a biblical test that's going to expose, like, how, do we, how are we sure that this test is well-designed? I would just go, somebody just read passages of Scripture and came up with questions. How do I know? So, so you, have, you have that question. Secondly, um, the, whole, the whole enterprise of I sit down and, and take a test about, I look inside myself and take a test about what's inside myself, it kind of lends a, it can lend a very individualistic flavor to the whole enterprise of spiritual gifts. Now, there is some value in knowing ourselves, self-evaluation, and I mean, we are individuals and that matters, but kind of to Randy's point, I mean, we, we could come away kind of being like, I am a foot, you know, like, and I'm going to foot around here. That's like, and doesn't that cut against the grain of what the Spirit is doing with the gifts? What the Spirit is doing with the gifts is what? Serving and edifying others. And so a better model, in my judgment, is a little more organic, maybe sometimes a little less precise and sometimes a little more confusing for a while. But it's just to uh, serve needs as you find them in the body. And on the way, just pay attention and discover where your fruitfulness and your desires lie. And pay attention to what others say about other, fee other people's feedback about what's helpful, what you do that's helpful. Uh, if they say, wow, that's super encouraging and helpful that you did X, and you go, wow, I, I, great, I'd like to do more of X. Maybe that's how God's gifted you. So, by the way, one another, encourage others that serve you. If they, if they serve you in a way that's beneficial to you in Christ, tell them. Maybe that'll help them discover their gift. But there is a tension at the heart of New Testament teaching on service. That I, I don't know of a real easy way around. It's just a matter of wisdom and tension, which is, on the one hand, love simply sees needs and moves to meet them. And this is kind of what you're saying, Maggie, is like you have passages, Galatians 6. If anyone is stumbling, you who are spiritual, restore that person. Go, go to that person. Go to that need and meet it. James 1.27, true religion is to, to, to meet the need of the widow and the orphan. There's just pressing needs. If you really are 
uh, a, a new creation in Christ, go toward that need and meet it, and so on. There's texts like that. But on the other hand, so on the one hand, love just says there's a need, go, go meet it. That's the impulse of love, right? But then on the other hand, the Bible does teach us about spiritual gifts and about diversity of operations that are gifted by the Spirit. So there is a place for being thoughtful about goodness of fit. There is a place for seeing a need and, and being eva- evaluating, like, am I the best person for that role, for that need? So sometimes, again, I think with, this, is, this is not, it's not mechanistic. We're not a machine. We're a body. Sometimes you use your toenail to scratch an itch, <laughs> which is not designed for that purpose. But if it's what's handy, um, sometimes you choose to serve in areas that aren't at the peak of your gifting simply because there's an urgent need and you love the body. That's the point of gifts anyway. Other times, though, we will let certain needs pass by because it's just not a good fit, and we don't think we'll be very helpful to others if we try to meet that need. And you can pray that someone else will. And, you know, again, this is a wisdom issue. When do you do A? When do you do B? It it, it, it takes prayer. It takes, and I I do believe the Spirit will lead uh, the the people of of Christ as we, um, if we're walking by the Spirit, if we're loving each other, if we're, we're growing and having an impulse toward moving toward each other in service and paying attention to how are others blessed or not blessed by my ministry, we're going to figure it out. That's, that's, my, that's, that's why I believe is a, a New Testament, better New Testament model uh, than, than strict, uh, you know, like everyone takes a test and then we, we go from there. Could be useful. Uh, I, again, I'm not here to say they're, they're bad, but um, just being aware of pitfalls. But, yeah, Gary. Could something like that uh, develop and you say, oh, man, I'm this. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm better mm-hmm. because I've got this gift. And so could pride be yes. in a pitfall for some of this stuff? Right, absolutely could. Which is what- exactly why later, between those two gift lists I mentioned in 1 Corinthians 12, the big, the big section in between that is him, kind of what Randy mentioned, is him saying, don't say, oh, I'm this body part, so I'm more or less important than the other, is understanding that everyone has a role, and everyone's role is vital, and everyone's role is appointed sovereignly by the Holy Spirit, should make every, it should be kind of a, uh, a leveling effect on all of us. So the one who thinks, I have no role here, I'm, I'm just a wallflower, should, should go, by the grace of God, I do matter, and I have a part to play, and I ought not to impoverish the body of, of my, the contribution I owe them. And it should also make that one maybe who has a more prominent role, and uh, certain gifts are more visible and prominent, and there could be a temptation toward pride, but it should, make, it should level, you know, put that person down a few notches of going, I'm just another cog in the wheel. Well, that's a machine metaphor. I'm just another part in the body. Right? Is there another question or thought? Yeah. Statement. I'm paraphrasing. I can't remember where it is, but Scripture is talking about vessels for noble person mm-hmm. purposes mm-hmm. and ignoble purposes. Talking about the church. Yeah, I think that's in Second Timothy. I'm not quite sure what what the connection with spiritual. Yeah, that's a good. The, the vessels for noble and ignoble purposes. Yeah, that's a good question. Where that fits in, I haven't really looked into how that would connect to spiritual gifts, but that's a good question. Yeah. Um, let's look at then any other questions about this general teaching on, on spiritual gifts. Let's, uh, let's move into talking about miraculous gifts. So there's a subset of the gifts listed in the New Testament, both in, uh, modeled in narratives and 
discussed in, in teaching, like in 1 Corinthians, that we'll call miraculous gifts. So we'll first explain them and then talk about the issue of continuing or discontinuing. So definition and purpose. A miracle is a divine work that bypasses normal operations of nature and demonstrates God's power in a, in a manifest way, that is clear, visible way, in a way that's meant to provoke faith. Okay, So I'll say that again. A miracle is a divine work that bypasses normal operations of nature. So God's always working. He's providence. God's, it's not like God does miracles and everything else is nature. No, God oversees and superintends nature. But a miracle bypasses the normal operations of nature in a way that demonstrates God's power and activity and is meant to provoke faith. So um, that's a miracle. Now, we're not here, though, in this, in this discussion. We're not just talking about miracles. We're talking about miraculous spiritual gifts. And that distinction, as we'll see, actually matters. Because a spiritual gift seems to be a way of an individual is kind of equipped in an ongoing, stable, somewhat predictable way to perform certain functions. And so a miraculous spiritual gift would be somebody has the ability to perform miracles kind of the durable, predictable ability to perform miracles as a spiritual gift. So as an example, a healing gift would be different than simply praying for a miraculous healing, and God says yes. When we pray, think about how Jesus heals in the Gospels, and then it's the same when the apostles are healing in Acts. They don't pray. They don't say, oh, you're you're, you're sick. Let me pray for you. And then we'll watch and see what happens over the next couple of days. Maybe God will heal you. That is not how Jesus and the apostles heal in the Gospels and Acts. What do they do? They look at the person. They often will touch them. And they say, like, be healed. And what happens? Instantly and unmistakably in the sight of all, they are healed. And um, the point, as you kind of heard in my definition, is to verify the authenticity of God's message and bring about faith. In Acts 2.22, Peter describes Jesus to a crowd on the day of Pentecost, and he, he describes Jesus as a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. That is such a clear, he was attested to you by God through signs and wonders, uh, mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. It is attestation. It is God's stamp of, this is my man, this is my messenger, listen to him. And Acts 3 is a very clear story. If you we won't look at it together, but if you read Acts 3, it's, it's such a clear picture of how this works with the apostles. They heal this man. I think this is what Greg preached on, uh, on both Good Friday and Easter on, on Acts 3, that sermon that ensued from that healing. But uh, the man asked him for money, and, and they say, we don't have silver and gold, but what we have, we heal you. And everyone sees that he's healed. He springs up. Everyone's like, What? And then there's an opportunity to preach the gospel, which is what happens. Um, and, and it's especially associated after Jesus, after Pentecost, with apostolic ministry, but not limited to apostles. So it's not only the apostles who have miraculous gifts, but it seems to be tied broadly to the apostolic ministry. So Paul tells the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. Um, so it seems like there is a broad association of apostolic ministry to these gifts. And, and we're going to talk a little bit about each one individually. I've identified uh, healing, 
prophecy, languages, and possibly words of wisdom and knowledge. Uh, but are there any up to this point, uh, what we've just said so far on this? Yeah, Paul. Also, mostly Peter, usually when he was going to do a miracle, he mentioned the power of Christ mm-hmm. before he did it. And also, when you notice when Jesus healed, he didn't send you to three weeks of rehab. He, you, when he healed you, you were like... Yeah. Yeah, so the healings were instant and full, and, and it was clear they were being done in the name of Christ and in service of the preaching of the gospel. Absolutely. That is a very clear paradigm throughout Acts. Yeah. Um, let's talk about healing. And we already just talked about healing, uh, but, but again, this is not praying for God to heal and him miraculously healing. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about instant, certain and potentially numerous. We're talking about people going around and doing many acts of healing one after the other. Um, so again, I commend you Acts 3, verses 6 to 10. You have later on in Acts, you have, uh, I believe in Acts 19, you have um, Paul kind of going around and doing miracles like this, just sort of in a, clearly he has some supernatural power. He knows he has this power. He's not just throwing up prayers and seeing what God does. He's, he's going one after the other. Um, and in these, in these healings, and this is the same in the ministry of Jesus. Uh, it's the same there as with the apostles. In these healings, the Spirit is signaling that the last days have come. This is like the whole big point of Pentecost and the tongues and everything. It's like the last days are here. This is God's saving work. This is God's new creation in Christ. It's beginning. It's not finishing yet. It finishes climactically in Christ's return. But it's beginning and so all these healings are like little foretastes of new creation glory, new heavens and the new earth, when every, all the effects of sin are rolled back. So that's part of why it's fitting that when the Spirit comes, there, there are healings. Yeah, Jeff. And talking with people who are non-cessationists, mm-hmm. I've heard them talk about you know, people with the gift of healing or the gift of prophecy. Mm-hmm. Are there biblical examples where somebody is defined as having one specific of these gifts? Is there, are there biblical examples where someone is, is said to have one specific I don't know about one and no others. Yeah, yeah. A lot of times, yeah. I, I, don't, I don't remember that being the way it is. It's just, well, there are certain people identified as prophets. Yeah. And there are certain people that, I don't know if there's anyone, I don't think there's anyone who is singled out as a healer, like, in that way. But but there are there are people that seem to be, I would say you, Paul, you have the gift of healing. Like you can go out and do it, <laughs> and Peter. Um, it seems that they they can do it in a kind of again an ongoing, stable, predictable way. Is that kind of your your question? Yeah, I'm just kind of trying to think through. Mm-hmm. Specifically, with certain people I'm thinking of, and yeah, in my life. I'm not sure of anyone but the apostles that that seem to have healing. But we do like I want to be I don't want to just tie it strictly to the apostles because t- like we're going to see languages and prophecy that's not uh, limited to the apostles so we don't want to we, we don't want to hitch ourselves to that as like our argument but yeah Christy found that say that they can heal like mm-hmm. are they are they like are they believing and you I mean you don't obviously know but are they believing that they can heal instantly or are they saying we're praying for God to heal you yeah that's a good question are today when people say they have healing ministries are they are they purporting to do what we're seeing in the New Testament 
Are they are they kind of going your heel right now? I, I think they are, but they um, they are trying to. They're not just saying we're going to pray for you and see if God chooses. You. I, we should do that. We should say let's pray for miraculous. There's no biblical reason to think that God wouldn't do that, or 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 is is closed off to doing that. But what they're trying to do is something different. But I think that in experientially they know that that does not how. So there will often be like, a, well, it takes a while to really show itself kind of a thing. And, and I haven't directly run into this a lot, but I, from what I've seen, there will be things like this. Like, oh, just, just wait over the next couple of days. It will become clearer that this has happened. And that's why I would say I, I don't think you're going to see anything quite like what we see in the New Testament um, because it, it's spurious. I'm going to show my hand here. It's not really what we see in the New Testament. But I think they, they say they're doing that, but they have to find ways to explain why it doesn't look exactly like it looks in Acts. My dad and his girlfriend went to a church that mm-hmm. taught that there was healing. Mm-hmm. And she died from yeah. cancer because she never went to the doctor. Yeah. And that's horrible. Yeah, it is. Her mind's um, God-given providential means of medicine. It's interesting. You see in the New Testament... Uh, Paul tells Timothy, take a little wine for your stomach. You know, <laughs> he says, like, you make use of, you know, medicinal means. Like, it's not unspiritual. Um, so, talk about prophecy. Prophecy is authoritative revelation from God through a human mouthpiece. It is authoritative revelation from God through a human. Some have argued that New Testament prophecy, as a spiritual gift, is a different kind of prophecy than, like, Old Testament-inspired biblical prophets. That's actually less authoritative and less and infallible. It's actually a, potentially open to being wrong. Um, so they, you could say God's telling me to say this, but that might not be right. There are people who argue, continuationists who argue that that's what New Testament prophecy is. Um, I don't believe. I'm not convinced that that the arguments they make for that hold up exegetically and theologically. We won't get into the weeds there, but. Um, prophecy in the New Testament is exactly what it is in the Old Testament. It is inspired speech from the Spirit of God through a human mouthpiece. That's all prophecy is all throughout the Bible. And as in the Old Testament, some of it is written and some of it isn't. Some of it is meant to be uh, canonized and inscripturated for all time. Some of it isn't. Same with the Old Testament. We had prophets going around in the Old Testament that were never written down. God didn't mean it for a covenantal inscripturated revelation, but some of it he did intend. Same in the New Testament. Any questions on that, on prophecy? You say that again, Pastor, from, God. from God through a human mouthpiece. Yeah. Languages. Tongues, languages. By the way, language, tongue means language. So it, it sounds like this special term, like this, 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 this really special thing. It means languages. Okay. So what about this gift of language and their interpretation? The gift of tongues or languages, this one attracts a special degree, I think, of curiosity, speculation, and argument. And um, we looked at this earlier, but Acts 2, 16 to 18, I think is a very helpful alert to us that languages, this gift of languages, which is what's happening at the day of Pentecost, is prophecy. This is a kind of prophecy. This is exactly what, when Peter is trying to interpret the experience of Pentecost, he refers to Joel 2, And this is what he says in Acts 2.16.
But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. This, what you're seeing now happening, is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in these last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And he says again in verse 18, I'll pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. Peter is saying this is prophetic utterance. But the, the thing about the gift of languages is it is inspired speech. That's why I'm saying it's prophecy. It is inspired speech, proclamation from God, spoken in a human language, not normally known by the speaker. It is inspired utterance from God, spoken in a human language, not normally known by the speaker. And because it's prophecy, its edification value depends entirely on being understood. It is a message to be understood. That's what happens in Acts 2. They hear these people, these people who speak other languages, hear the the people who, the Christians, speaking the mighty works of God in their own language. And they're like, whoa, they're speaking my language, the mighty works of God. Um. And that's why in 1 Corinthians 12, interpretation of languages is listed as a spiritual gift because how else is this God-given utterance in another language to be edifying to everyone else who's hearing? How will it edify them if they don't know the language it's being spoken in? It has to be interpreted. So it's so helpful for us to realize it is prophecy, it is utterance from God, and it is meant to be heard and understood. Why, why then is it in a different language? Why not just give prophecy? Well, it seems to be, again, in Acts 2, the miraculous layer of it's manifestly miraculous. It does everything a miracle is supposed to do. It gets people's attention and goes, whoa, God's working here. I should listen. And it verifies the truthfulness of the message. And as we'll see in a, a moment, too, 1 Corinthians 14, Paul explains that tongues are also a judgment against Israel who has rejected its Messiah and has to now hear about him in other languages. That is a judgment against Israel for their unbelief. Paul cites Isaiah 28 to make that point. We'll talk about that more in a moment. Any questions about? Yeah, I've seen a couple. Jeff and then then Christy, yeah. Talking about different languages, these are actual languages, correct? Not just... Babel, Correct. Not yeah. Not free. Uh, not free. Oh, uh, one author says that what's often practiced free vocalization. It's not that. It's a language. It's a miracle. It's something only God could do. Yeah, Christy. Is it interpreted by one person or by everybody? Like is it interpreted by one or everybody? It seems like because interpretation is listed among other spiritual gifts that it would fit the broader pattern of this is what one part of the body might be able to do. So somebody might be there. Again, we're thinking of the, the, the church meeting in Corinth in the first century. Someone has a, has a prophetic utterance in a foreign language. Somebody else has been gifted to interpret that and to explain what it means. Seems to me. Yeah. So when we think about the languages and just the gifts abroad, mm-hmm. should we think of Pentecost as a separate event of like everyone there was speaking yeah. in language. Yeah. You know, Good question. So like... How typical is Pentecost? How normal is that experience in the ongoing life of the church? Yeah. And we that's a whole other thing that's a really good question, but the short answer is it's not typical. <laughs> There's a lot of reasons in the narrative Acts to not see Acts 2 as the normal experience of every Christian. That's, that's a really cornerstone of Pentecostal theology is that that acts to experience when the spirit comes down on you, you have tongues. That is what it looks like for the spirit to come. That there, There's a lot of 
evidence as you look through the whole book of Acts that that's only very key moments in the in basically the, the progress of the gospel and the expansion of the church in, in this very transitional moment of redemptive history. Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I have to move on. I'm sorry, I know there's, there's other hands. Hopefully we'll help quell some of or answer some of the questions, but um, as we go. Last thing to barely briefly touch on is words of wisdom and knowledge. Those are listed in 1 Corinthians 12, and it's kind of hard to know what they mean, but they may be describing supernatural knowledge that are not learned through natural means by somebody that God gives them, kind of like when Jesus in the Gospels knows things in people's hearts um, supernaturally. It, it might be that kind of thing. Let's talk about this question. We've kind of touched on it, and I know it's in a lot of our minds of continuation or cessation. Uh, are these continuing today? Um, these miraculous gifts? That is the question. I'll be very, very clear. The question specifically is, So in recent history, claims to the miraculous gifts began uh, with the Azusa Street Revival in the early excuse me, 1900s. Um, this began the Pentecostal movement and denomination. And uh, as kind of Anna Lee referred to, Pentecostalism is marked by this, not only not only the practice and expectation of ongoing miraculous gifts, but the, the teaching that it is normal when the Holy Spirit comes on you to speak in tongues. Um, later on... Um, there was in the 60s and 70s a charismatic movement that some of the, the ongoing uh, practice of these miraculous gifts um, broke out of the Pentecostal denomination into other denominations, the Protestant and Roman Catholic denominations, 60s and 70s, and then later on there was what's called the third wave that began in the 1980s. Um, so today, millions of Christians around the world from all sorts of denominations claim to experience miraculous spiritual gifts. So, let's look at the continuationist position, which They say that both in the narratives of Acts and in the apostolic instruction of Paul, and the real hot spot here is 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, the New Testament presents miraculous gifts as normal and expected phenomena in the church. Continuationists point out that the New Testament nowhere clearly says that the gifts will end and that there is a strong claim to personal experience. I am experiencing these things. I, I speak in tongues. I, I, you know, I know many other people who speak in tongues. There's often a showing experiential argument that they will make. Uh, what about the cessationist position? Um, what do cessationists say, those who believe that these gifts ceased? Well, the New Testament teaching on the function of the gifts, of these gifts, clearly implies that they were temporary. And if you look at church history, it bears it out that these miraculous gifts did, in fact, cease after the era of the apostles. Uh, cessationists maintain that God can perform miracles and sometimes does, but not dispensing miraculous gifts. John Owen, a Puritan of the 17th century who wrote truckloads on the Holy Spirit, amazing stuff, while not denying the cessation of miraculous gifts, no Orthodox theologians of that era denied cessation. He suggested, though, we should expect to find certain seasons in church history when God more concentrated in a special way pours out miracles on his church. That's okay. That's uh, within the bounds of a, of a cessationist position. So we don't want to say there's no miracles. Cessationists also point out that experience is interpretive. What may seem to me to be tongues, prophecy, or healings can often be explained in other ways. 
Um, and so I believe, and our church takes a position that cessation is the biblical uh, and true position. And so we're going to dive into it a little more by ma- looking at a few considerations to help explain why. Before we do, any questions about what the positions are before we start talking about it? Yeah. yeah. Anna and then uh, Paul. Because I used to, a long time ago, I used to be involved with a church that uh-huh. held to the continuation. Mm-hmm. And um, one thing that stuck out to me years ago was in First uh, Corinthians 13, 8, mm-hmm. where it says, um, Charity never fails, but whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, am I misunderstanding that? Um, yes. Some cessationists have tried to argue that 1 Corinthians 13.8 is teaching cessation within the church history, but most, actually most cessationists do not teach that now and even say, yeah, that's not a good argument from 1 Corinthians 13.8, um, that it's probably we're, we're really comparing the, the future, the eschaton. We're, we're comparing glor- future glory with the present, not so much uh, different parts of church history. There's a long, all these things, there's a long conversation and debate over that, but I wouldn't pin. I wouldn't. I'm not going to pin any of our argument on First Corinthians 13:8. Good question, Paul. Did you have a question? If if you you're talking about Paul uh, a moment ago, when he said just take a little bit of wine to cure your stomach. Because if you read the through the Book of Acts, yeah, miracles miracles aren't happening. I mean, they they tend to they tend to peter out, and mm-hmm. then Paul. Why didn't Paul just heal that? Yeah. Instead of saying, yeah, go take so, some medicine. Yes, you're appealing. So with that, take some wine for some First Timothy. You're appealing to an, argu- an argument we're going to look at in a moment, which is considering the dynamic within the within the progress of the New Testament. That's something we're going to look at. Yep. And also, uh, people in the church today get miracles and providence mixed up. Mm-hmm. A lot of what you're seeing in the modern era now, and in, in the last hundreds of years, is God's providence versus miracles. Because miracles, like you said, is a suspension of nature, like mm-hmm. parting of the Red Sea. Yeah. You know, raising Lazarus from the dead. Yeah. You know, stuff like that. So, so yeah, it's a just an important theological category that providence. Um, pro- providence is an important category for us, and you know, you sometimes hear people say that was a God thing, and you know, I, I don't want to nitpick people's. I want to be careful nitpicking, but sometimes I go, well, what do you what do you mean by that? It seems like what they mean is a serendipitous thing that God providentially arranged. But again, it's like there's almost this, well, there's a God, there's a few God things, you know, God thing. Well, that I ran into that guy and that was a God thing. And everything else is not God things. It's just nature, right? Like, no, no, no. Everything that happens is a God thing in the sense of providence. But a miracle is, that's why we shouldn't throw around miracle too much of like, oh, it's such a miracle that, I don't, it's like, well, it's hard to say, right? Like, like God providentially does wonderful things. So anyway, yeah, that's a helpful category for us. Let's. Consider a few things. One is consider the foundational nature of the apostolic era. I'm going to read Ephesians 2.20. Um, the church, Paul says, is being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So apostolic and prophetic ministries were foundational, authoritative, revelatory offices. Think about this image of a foundation. And the church is being built on the foundation. A foundation is built initially once, and then when you keep building, you're building on top of it. You don't keep building a foundation. So there seems to be a differentiation within even these gifts and functions that some of them are foundational to lay the groundwork and others build upon it. And the revelatory offices of apostle and prophet are listed as 
foundational. So that makes sense, right? The, that apostolic and prophetic ministry has taken the form, taken the final shape of our New Testament canon, uh, a, a, a set of God-inspired scriptures that has, the cement has hardened, we could say, in that New Testament canon, which of course the Old Testament canon is also Christian scripture, and that's a foundation on which Christ builds his church. Uh, so that's one consideration. Um, and again, not only prophecy, but also you see like miraculous healings are associated with apostolic ministry and evangelism. So Acts 19 is a good place where you see Paul. It's very tied in with his apostolic event, evangelistic ministry. That, that, that healing. David. Prophecy where it was written down became scripture and other prophecy where yeah. it didn't. So how do the continuationists deal with that in terms of, most of them, I believe, do agree that Scripture is a closed canon. Yeah. God's not giving you Scripture. And yet, if we be, if they believe that there's prophets going around speaking for God still, yeah. why, like, I, I think I've used the argument before, maybe this is inappropriate. Like, well, then why not write it down and then it becomes part of Scripture, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. That's not a good argument. How do, how do you... Yeah, you know, that's a question of that? how do they deal... Well, yeah, how do they deal with the fact that... How, how do they deal with the closed canon of, of Scripture? I would say, yeah, I, I, I could see them having an argument of, well, they're not, never has all prophecy was it supposed to be canonical. But what I would say is functionally, there's a difference between being in the era when, when authoritative revelation is still being given and written, and there being prophecy that's not written, versus when it has been written, and we have this doctrine of sola scriptura, which is this finished canon is the finished highest authority of doctrine and practice, to then be saying we're getting authoritative messaging from God. Functionally, I, I don't see how that couldn't trip us up. That's an argument, you're anticipating argument, yeah, later on. Um, that's a good question. Consider the New Testament movement towards stable revealed doctrine. This is kind of Paul's point, I think. Cessationists would, would reply to the continuations. Actually, miracles are not, you may think the Bible is just this, this sea of miracles happening all the time. It's actually really interesting to think about limited slice of moments in redemptive history when, when there's these like outbreaks of miracles and they seem to be turning points of redemptive history, the exodus or uh, the era of Elijah and Elisha which is a really key moment in, in biblical history and so on, Jesus the apostles these are key um, pivot points in redemptive history and so um, the two books think about it, the two books that have the most to say about miracles after Pentecost Virtually, almost all the mention in the New Testament of signs uh, after Pentecost are Acts and First Corinthians. There are a few other scattered references. Acts ends in the middle of the apostolic era. First Corinthians was written kind of early, probably AD 55. But if you look later on, even in Paul's ministry at the pastoral epistles, which all come later than this, and uh, Paul's concern overall broadly is how is the gospel, how is the church going to survive into future generations? And it's very interesting. He has nothing to say in First Timothy, Second Timothy, Titus about charismatic speech, about the Holy Spirit giving speech to the people of God. What is his focus in the pastoral epistles? It is preserving sound doctrine and the appropriate exercise of offices, of church offices. It's very interesting. That fits very well with the cessationist position. When he's looking at how's the church going to make it, it's Preserve sound doctrine, study, study, teach, be faithful to the gospel, and raise up men, you know, look for godly elders and deacons and raise up other men you can pass this on to. I have a, a, 
a bunch of references there in the pastoral epistles you can look up. That's all that Paul's saying in all those. So that's interesting. He's not pointing them to keep listening to the Holy Spirit, keep listening for prophecy. That's an argument from silence, but I think it has some weight. Consider the nature of miraculous languages. We saw earlier that these, again, in the Bible, these are real human languages. And uh, some have pointed out, I, I think this is true. I, I'm not going to sit here and, and say, I've heard every case of everyone speaking in tongues. You know, But from what I've encountered, it seems to be free vocalization. It does not, I, 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 I've never heard what sounds to me like a human language, a real human language that the person didn't know. And that is what you see in Acts 2. It's prophecy. Again, the purpose is edification, is to convey a message to be understood. And again, as I pointed out, um, 1 Corinthians 14.21, Paul argues, tongues are a sign not for believers but for unbelievers. There's this whole layer in this moment of redemptive history as the gospel is moving from Israel, who rejects Christ, and some are saved. You know, Paul always starts in the synagogues in every city. It's for the Jew first, but also for the Greek. But the movement of the gospel is generally the Jews are rejecting it, and the gospel moves out to the Gentiles. And so there's this, think about it. You're the chosen nation of God. You were promised the Messiah. And then you are hearing Gentiles talking about the Messiah in their languages. You're having to hear it that indirectly. It's, it's kind of a burn. It's, I mean, it's, it's meant to be a judgment. And in the context, broader context, like Romans 11, I think it's meant to provoke Israel to jealousy and repentance. It's actually, it's not, um, it's not malicious of God. It's meant to provoke them to repentance. So again, it, it would suggest that these uh, these languages are limited to that context, that apostolic era, when we're having this big dynamic of the gospel starting with the Jews and moving out to the Gentiles. Yeah, Jeff. I grew up in a Pentecostal church mm-hmm. that's speaking in tongues in these ways. And the argument that's made is that is not the spiritual gifts like prophecy like yeah. it's it's a different category of gift. Yeah. Is there any biblical basis for splitting these? Yeah, that categories? is an argument to make that what you see in Acts 2 is not what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 12. Um or is that just them, their way of having to navigate? Yeah, I don't think there's a good there's I don't know of a good biblical argument for that. They'll try to say it's the tongue of angels in 1 Corinthians 13 if I speak the tongue of men and angels. It's clear in that context Paul is giving hyperbolic examples if I give my body to be burned. And he's, <laughs> he's not saying that these people are speaking the, the languages of angels. Yeah. Um, yeah. Between 12 and 14. Yeah, exactly. As a warning about love being more important than all this other yes. minutia. Kind of like you yes, yes. spend a lot of time debating and arguing yes. and challenging one another. But you're missing the point if you're missing out on love yes. and caring for one another. So right. That hyperbole that you're talking because about. spiritual gifts are becoming in Corinth an occasion for a lot of controversy and you know, hands thinking they're more important than feet and all this. And so yeah, that right the center of the whole argument is love. First Corinthians thirteen. That's why I said the the main issue in gifts is it's for the loving edification of the body. Whatever you believe, if you disagree with us on miraculous gifts, still the main idea that's super important for us is. Loving edification of the body of Christ is the point. Yeah. Um, uh, briefly, I'll touch on what David, consider the theological implications of ongoing prophecy. If you really think about functionally how this will affect the life of the church, it is significant to think about going, 
Do we expect charismatic guidance from the Holy Spirit in our church that's authoritative? Like if someone says the Holy Spirit says, I need to listen to it. Will that affect us functionally? Yes, it would to some degree. I'm not arguing completely. To some degree, it will displace the importance of the interpretation and application of Scripture. Right? Because then you've got this, well, the Bible, it seems like I'm, I'm thinking biblically about some, and then someone comes in out of left field and says, but the Spirit says to do this other thing. And then now I go, oh, I'm, that's going to pressure me to throw out careful biblical consideration for this new, uh, this new teaching. So functionally, I'm just saying, it does push against uh, sola scriptura, this, this doctrine we believe that the sufficiency of Scripture for, as the highest authority for the church's faith and practice. Um, it's, it's, hard to, it's hard for me to see how sola scriptura could functionally exist alongside the ongoing phenomena of prophecy. Um, yeah? Um, I have understood contemporary prophecy, like a gift of prophecy, to be more like um, if, I, if I'm getting to know somebody, I have secret sin or mm-hmm. something in my life, and that person just has like God-given insight. Yeah. And they don't even, I haven't even shared something, but they have confronted me mm-hmm. or challenged me or revealed something yeah. that I need to hear from the yeah. Holy Spirit. And that I have understood to be pro- prophecy in a sense right. where people just have just a deeper insight into people and applying the scripture. Yeah. It's not their own word, but it's, you know, yeah. you to see the Holy Spirit or the scripture. We're going to... Uh, yeah, I'm not sorry. We're gonna we're gonna touch on that. So that someone knowing something about someone's heart and being able to speak to it, yeah, hold hold that thought. There there could be some validity to that if we if we if we define it rightly. Um, let's talk about church history. Basically, uh, some continuations say, "Oh, look, there's you see examples of people claiming the miraculous scattered throughout church history," and it's true. You do see those claims. Problem with that is number one, often. Those claims of miraculous are associated with some things, some unsavory things we wouldn't want to, to own for ourselves, like some spurious, you know, heterodox teaching. Also, it can be associated with other really weird associated miraculous claims that aren't like spiritual gift claims uh, not, that aren't consistent with what the, the, the New Testament teaches on the gift. So you want to be very careful hunting through church history for miracles and saying, ha, the, <laughs> you're going to you, you might get more than what you uh, what you bargained for there. Um, the overall picture is clear. Notwithstanding some of these claims, it's hard to know what to do with. The overall picture is clear that miraculous gifts stopped pretty soon after the apostolic era. And what do we do with that? You know, one, one important point to recognize is both sides have to have a problem, is that both sides have to interpret experience. If you are a cessationist, you have to deal with, what are we going to do about all the millions of people claiming to have charismatic experience? We have to explain that somehow, at least for ourselves. But if you're a continuationist, you have to deal with the long silence of church history. Why did the Holy Spirit stop giving miraculous spiritual gifts for 1,800 years? Was the church really that holy and broadly quenching the Spirit for that long? When 1 Corinthians 12, 11 says, He sovereignly distributes them as He wills. And it was clear that the Spirit was gifting the church in non-miraculous ways throughout that whole era. So the continuationist has to answer for that. Why did the miraculous gift seem to stop and then restart again? Consider the existence of miracles that aren't spiritual gifts. This is to Rhonda's point. Um, 
Cessationists are not arguing against miracles. We're not arguing that God cannot and sometimes won't do really, really unusual things. And uh, this is, we're, we're talking about abilities given um, ongoingly in, in the form of a gift by the Holy Spirit. I'll give you an example from Charles Spurgeon, the 19th century Baptist preacher, predated Pentecostalism by a generation, and so he affirmed the cessation of miraculous gifts. But one time, he's, he's preaching a sermon to 8,000 people, and he stops in the middle with laser-like precision. He calls out, he says, there's a shoemaker here who kept his shop open on the Sabbath and sinned, and you made this much money on that day. And he called this dude out, and he was right. He had no way of knowing that. And the guy was convicted like this wave of conviction, and he, was, he repented, he was saved. And Spurgeon says, God had spoken to my soul through him. Now, what do we do with that? That 1 Corinthians 14 does talk about, in, the, in prophecy, it talks about the secrets, you know, an unbeliever comes and you prophesy and you'll reveal the secrets of his heart and he'll fall on his face and worship God and declare God's really among you. Well, what happened? Only God knows what exactly happened. There's actually a few times, apparently it's happened in Spurgeon's ministry. As a cessationist, I have no problem with saying the Lord gave miraculous knowledge of someone's heart to Spurgeon in that moment. And he said that. We can, I don't know if that's what happened, but what I'm saying is we can affirm that without maintaining that miraculous gifts continue normatively as in New Testament times. God can do things here or there as he sees fit. Who knows? And we don't really need to know, but just going, okay, if that happens, it happens. We don't have to say he lied or made it up. I don't know. But we don't have to deny the, on, well, the point here is we don't have to deny that God can and does sometimes do miraculous things among us. Cessationists before, Pent- before Pentecostals and before 1900 did not argue that. That's kind of my point. As John Owen says, sometimes there are going to be miracles. And Spurgeon said, sometimes there were miracles. Um, we don't have to, cessationists classically historically have not argued against that. Questions about that? They open, <laughs> open up. Yeah, yeah, Christina. That's a really beautiful point, just because, I mean, like, I grew up in a more continuationist mm-hmm. church where I have seen things where I'm like, God does still do miracles today. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, on an individual basis, and there's mm-hmm. nobody can argue against my own experience in my own heart. My right, own right, life. right. It's like, I've seen it, you know, like, yeah. so. Um, it's hard, yeah, it, it seems like yeah. you've seen that. Yeah, and so, but I think that I've often kind of discounted the cessationist view because of the feeling of, like, people are trying to tell me that didn't, that must not have really happened because mm-hmm. I don't believe mm-hmm. you, that that happened to you, mm-hmm. and God doesn't work that way today, so mm-hmm. therefore, that's just wrong, you know, and I'm like, yeah. well, that's my experience of faith, and in and, and, and those experiences, God is glorified because he's moved in those individuals and circumstances, and... Um, often in a very faith-emblazing yeah. way. And, yeah. um, and so I think that just the, I think that we can err on both sides by just saying, if A plus B equals mm-hmm. C, then yeah. we can get God to do this by doing this, or like, you know, yeah. on the continuation side of saying that, you know, well, if your faith was bigger, then you would have actually been healed. But, you know, you're, you know mm-hmm. it's like, it's not the, my lack of healing gift, it's your lack of faith or whatever. Yeah, yeah, it is. that so, would be, yeah. We can be, yeah, we can be. But, but yeah, it's like, I think that, like, I think that just your ability to say, yeah, God can do anything he wants to, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's like, mm-hmm. and does do anything that he wants yeah. to. Yeah, and, and we're not always going to be able to explain what exactly he did or didn't do. Um, y
the, the, on the other hand, too, and I know you defer this too, Christina, all, experiences, it, all experience is interpreted. So to some degree, our labeling of what just happened to me is going to be shaped by our beliefs and what we expect is and isn't possible. And I'm not interested in going after all the charismatics and saying, no, let me explain what really happened to you. I, I wasn't there. I don't know. That, uh, that's a kind of a losing <laughs> uh, a game for us. We don't need to do that. But just to recognize that experience is interpreted. That experiences don't, usually don't just prove themselves without any, any kind of grid. We use a grid to answer what just happened to me. Um, one thing with prophecy is that it can be kind of tough. You can, there can be confusion between illumination and revelation. What is the Holy Spirit saying something new? And what's the Holy Spirit helping my heart to see something, the implications of what he's already said? And a lot of times when a charismatic is saying, God says to me X, at best we can say, well, brother, I think what you, I think what you should be saying is God helped me to see on the basis of what scripture says X is true. A lot of times what they're saying is biblical. And a lot of times it's not. And some of you may have experienced where a prophecy comes in out, coming in hot and you're like, what on earth? But sometimes it's just a, an exhortation about sanctification and sin or encouragement. And it's like, we don't have to say like, no, that's from Satan. It's just there could be some category confusion about what the Holy Spirit is actually doing. And so on. Um, so there's just a matter of just realize that experience is interpreted and we need to be biblical and thoughtful about what we, how we interpret our experience. Always, everyone has to do that, whatever your position. So, in closing, spiritual gifts are gracious abilities given by Christ through his spirit that enable members of his body to serve the common good, give life to the body as we love one another. Uh, they entail speaking and serving, all kinds of, of individual activities. The bottom line of all of them is loving operation for the purpose of our collective building up in Christ, in his image. Um, some of the gifts in the New Testament were miraculous, meant to verify the truth of the apostolic teaching. Um, and these gifts ended as the apostolic era came to a close, and their body of written revelation became completed and stabilized in our New Testament canon. Uh, but God does and can still perform miracles among his people. We should watch for miracles. We should pray for them. We should thank God for them, but not expect them as normative in the life of the church in Sarah. So, I'm sure there's other questions that this stirs up. I would love to interact with you. Uh, go to community group and uh, fill your discussion of community group with, with all your questions about uh, miraculous spiritual gifts. But I hope it's helpful. And again, I'm, I'm glad to interact uh, after class. Let's pray. Thank you, God. Thank you, Jesus, for gifting your church with gracious gifts in the spirit so that we can love one another. Um, we pray that you'd help us to do that more and more zealously and fully and devote ourselves to the upbuilding of the body through whatever means you empower in us so that you, the giver, will be glorified in all. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.